Last week, I attended some pastoral meetings in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and on the way from the airport to the hotel, I had a fascinating gospel conversation with our Uber driver named Manny. Manny is a devoted Sikh, and we had a very interesting conversation about good and evil. And he said something that surprised me. He said this. There's really no difference between good and evil. There's no difference between good and bad. Everything is just the same. Everything's just a matter of perception. There's no real difference between good and bad. Now, at that point, I wanted to say, well, do you want a good tip or a bad tip, Manny? I didn't say that. Most of us would not affirm Manny's philosophical statement. Most of us see a big difference between good and bad. We, we aspire to live good lives. We don't want to do bad things to other people. But how do we know what the good life is? How, how, how do we know what is good and bad? Who gets to decide that? And where do good and bad deeds come from? How do you recognize them? Well, for answers to that question, all those questions. I want us to open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter six, Luke chapter six. We're continuing in our study of this glorious gospel, according to Luke. And in our verses this morning in Luke chapter six in three verses, verses 43 to 45, Jesus gets to the very heart of good and evil. And he shows us in these verses that the line separating good and evil passes through every human heart, including your own. Let's listen now to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43. This is what Holy Scripture says. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So, My prayer for each one of us is that we would know the goodness of our Lord, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the friend and the savior of sinners. First thing I want you to see in verses 43 to 44, I want you to pay careful and prayerful attention to the illustration, the illustration that Jesus gives in verses 43 to 44. Jesus illustrates the right use of judging ourselves and others by using this imagery of good trees and bad trees, good fruit and bad fruit. So look at it again. Verse 43, look at the imagery that he's using, the illustration that he's using. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. And then he's going to explain For each tree is known by its own fruit. And he gives another explanation. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. 
nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Bramble, kids, brambles are just like briars, like thorns, okay? So initially, Jesus doesn't tell us what does he mean by good tree or bad tree. But as you read the passage, you can understand the following statements clarify. He has in mind the type of fruit a tree produces. That's what he means when he talks about good and bad. So if you notice in that verse, figs and grapes would be good. They're set over and against bad fruit, thorns or brambles. Okay, so a good tree is one that produces and brings forth good fruit like like figs or grapes. A bad tree in Jesus illustration is a, a tree that brings forth bad fruit like thorns and thistles and briars. So if you're hiking in the woods, kids, if you're hiking in the woods and you get hungry and you want a healthy snack, you're not going to go look for a briar patch. You're not going to go look for a thorn bush, right? You're going to look for fruit. You're going to look for a grapevine or an apple tree. I don't even know if we have fig trees in, in North America, but you get the point. The point is you're going to look for the tree that has fruit, good fruit that you can eat. Now, those types of trees are noticeable, recognizable from far off. You can see a briar patch or an apple tree. You can see the difference even from far off. And that's actually Jesus's point. Look at verse 44. The central point is right there. He says, for each tree is known. Your Bible may say recognized by its own fruit. In other words, the fruit of a tree is an unfailing indication of the nature of the tree. You recognize the tree, whether it's a good or bad tree, by looking at its fruit. Now, this is clear. This is easy to understand. My brother, Chris, I have an older brother named Chris who has a horticulture degree. You don't need a horticulture degree from the University of Tennessee to understand what Jesus is saying. Very simple, very clear. But I want to ask you a question. What does this illustration have to do with what he just said about judging others? Look at your Bible again. Look at verse 43. What's the little word that starts off verse 43? I had one person say it. Four. Yeah, do you see that? Four. Now that's, that's a conjunction. That, what, G, what Luke is telling us is he's connecting what Jesus is saying in this verse to what he's just said about judging. He's explaining something about what we just learned. Jesus just said about the, the, the log. He said, take the log out of your what? Your own eye before you take out the speck that's in your brother's eye, right? Deal with your own sin first before you can go and help and serve your brother with his speck or his splinter. So Jesus is explaining how we're to rightly judge others and others' actions and ourselves by looking at the fruit. So in other words, Jesus wants us to look at the fruit in our lives and the fruit in the other person's life so that we can help care for them spiritually. The fruit of our lives and the fruit of the lives of others reveals the state of our hearts. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we can know 
who is a follower of Jesus Christ and who is not by recognizing them by their fruit. Now, anytime Jesus uses an illustration, in the back of your mind, you should think he's probably drawing from where? Any guess? The Old Testament, right? Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament scriptures. So we, we read earlier in Jeremiah 17, but here's another one. Psalm 1. What, is, what, is, what, is, what does Psalm 1 say about the righteous man? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that what? Yields its fruit in its season. And whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like the what? The shaft that the wind drives away. So in Psalm 1, the one who is righteous before the Lord is the one who is a life-giving, fruit-bearing tree. The one who is wicked, according to Psalm 1, is someone who is not blessed but cursed and the one whose life is full of chaff, branches, sticky briars. You can't eat chaff. Its only purpose is to be turned into kindling. When we read Jeremiah 17 earlier, Jeremiah 17 verses 7 to 8, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, sends out its roots by its stream. And then the very last clause says, this this person is not anxious when the drought comes. Why? For it does not cease to bear fruit. So there again, The one who trusts in the Lord, the one who trusts in God, who believes his promises, is one who bears fruit. That's how you recognize a believer. A believer is recognized by his or her fruit. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Now, if you ask someone, especially in the southern part of the United States, if you ask someone, I've heard this here, if you ask someone, are you a Christian? Sometimes this is the kind of answer that you get. Are you a Christian? Have you ever asked someone that? And they say something like this. Well, yeah, I come from a Christian home. You know, my mom was a Christian. My dad was a Christian. My grandparents were Christians. My great, great granddad was a Baptist pastor. And I I grew up going to church. I grew up going to Bible studies. Yeah, so I'm a Christian. And and that's, that's not answering the question, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? We don't point to our ethnic identity. I'm a Jew or I'm a Gentile. We don't point to our family lineage to prove that we are Christians. That's not what makes us ultimately right with God. So remember what John the Baptist said? Take your Bibles, flip over to John, or excuse me, Luke chapter 3. Flip to Luke chapter 3. Look what he says. Right there, beginning in verse eight, all these people were coming out to the Jordan to be baptized by John. What did he tell them? John, I'm sorry, Luke chapter three, verse eight, bear fruits. You see that in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Notice what he says. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. You see what John is saying? John is saying you're either a fruit-bearing tree that's marked by repentance and faith, or you're kindling for the fire, your chaff, your chaff that the wind drives away. So today, maybe, maybe you're here because you have a godly mother. Maybe you're here because your mother wanted you to come to church on Mother's Day. And we should praise God for our, 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 our godly heritage. If you have a godly mother, you should praise the Lord. I remember Charles Spurgeon said, Never could it be possible for any man to estimate what he owes to a godly mother. And we want to honor godly mothers every day. Not just on the day that's been commercialized by our country to buy Mother Day gifts, right? But the saving grace of God, listen, doesn't travel through bloodlines. It doesn't, doesn't travel through the family tree. Every true child of God becomes a child of God by the grace of adoption. Adoption purchased by the blood of Christ. Adoption Applied by the Holy Spirit of adoption, adoption received in the empty hands of faith in Jesus Christ. We read in John's gospel to all who did receive Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Listen, not of blood, not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So Jesus begins with this striking illustration about the fruit-bearing tree because he wants us to know it's not about our family tree. It's about whether or not we are fruit-bearing trees that are united to him by faith alone. A tree, Jesus says, is known by its fruits. That's the illustration. Then he's going to give us, number two, the instruction. Look at, look at their, the instruction. Verse 45, the instruction. Jesus makes the following instruction. I'm going to summarize it for you. Your actions, attitudes, and words are an unfailing indication of the state of your heart. Let's say that again. Your actions... Attitudes and words are an unfailing indication of the state of your heart. Verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure or your Bible may say uh, out of the good stored up. That's the idea. Stored up out of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his good treasure or out of the evil stored up in his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So let me break this instructions down into two parts. First, your fruit, the fruit in your life flows from your heart. Your fruit flows from your heart. 
we tend to believe and even to act like what around what is around us determines our actions. So we think about our words are being uh, uh, our, we think about what we say and what we do. It, it, the problem is outside of us rather than what is on the inside of us. So what we do, we say, is due to what is outside of us. So, for example, maybe you, you, you smarted off to your spouse and you say, I'm just stressed out. I had a hard week. Right. And, you know, my, my employees are you know, giving me a hard time. I have a difficult boss. Right. That that's that's why I smarted off. Um, maybe maybe um, you have a lack of sleep. You're not getting a lot of sleep. You're burning the candle at both ends. You know, like that. That's the reason I'm grumpy today. Um, I'm under a lot of stress. Uh, we blame our circumstances. We blame our spouses. We blame our friends. We blame we blame our children, um, our, our finances. But that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus doesn't talk about what's outside of us. Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Notice again, the good person out of the good treasure. Notice this phrase. So, so this is the point. Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Of his heart produces good. And the same goes for the one who produces evil. In other words, your fruit, either good or evil, flows from inside of you out. It's like a river going this way from your heart out. A bad heart produces bad fruit and a good heart produces good fruit. Now, what are some of the bad fruit? We already read about them in Mark chapter seven. Remember, Jesus says it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. He says it's from within, out of the heart of man. And Jesus lists out all these things, evil thoughts and sexual morality and theft and murder and slander and foolishness. He says all of those things, all of those things come from within. It originates within. Now, what are, what are some of the things, what are some of the fruits of a good heart. Well, children, you probably memorized this verse, Galatians 5:22. The fruit of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, bringing forth those good fruits. Now, when you go to the grocery store, uh, especially uh, if you don't go that often, when you go to the grocery store and let's say you go to get some produce, I seriously doubt you just go to the produce section and start randomly picking up pieces of fruit without examining them and just throw them into your basket, right? You don't do that. When you pick up some fruit, some produce, you examine, you smell, you stare, you squeeze, you investigate because... You want to ensure you're getting good fruit and not bad fruit, right? I mean, biting into an overripe, mushy apple is traumatic. Having to wait for days upon days for those rock hard avocados to become edible is a fate almost worse than death. Making a smoothie with green bananas, I mean, that's just horrible, right? Well, You have to examine the produce before you get it. And in the same way, Jesus is calling his people, his disciples, to examine their own fruit first 
before you start judging the fruit of others. Remember, that little word for is connecting it back to the log and the speck. We need to be inspecting the fruit in our own lives. Now, it's easy to become an expert at examining other people's spiritual produce. But Jesus wants us to begin with ourselves. This passage is calling us to self-examination. The last thing about this is your words. The second thing is this. Your words are a window into your heart. You see that at the very last phrase. He, he doesn't just talk about actions in general. He specifically talks about our words. Do you see that? For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Do you see that? So if you want to know what's going on in my heart, your words are a crystal clear window into your heart. Your words are an overflow. Just like you're boiling water and the water flows over the side, the water that comes out of the pot was in the pot. The words that come out of your mouth, they were in your heart. They're a picture, they're a window of what's going on in your heart. You can see your heart through the window of your words. Paul Tripp puts it like this in his book, War of Words. It's very tempting to blame others or to blame the situation around us, but word problems reveal heart problems. Word problems reveal heart problems. And the people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasion for our hearts to reveal themselves in words, end quote. So brothers and sisters, this is, this is Christ's illustration. This is Christ's instruction. Your actions and your attitudes and your words, these are an unfailing indication of the state of our hearts. So, short passage, how are we supposed to respond to this? Number three, I'm going to close with several injunctions. Now, my wife was impressed that I came up with another I word. I, I, I had to use the thesaurus, right? We have illustration, instruction, and now injunctions. Injunctions are just exhortations. What are some injunctions that flow from this passage as we understand ourselves standing in Christ in the gospel? First thing, number one. First injunction, set your hope fully upon the God of the new covenant. Now, don't be confused. I'm not saying the God of the new covenant is different from the God of the old covenant. I'm saying set your hope fully on God, the one who has secured for us the new covenant. Now, this is, I hope when you're reading about this language of the heart, that you hear in the language that Jesus is using about the heart, he's drawing upon, again, Old Testament imagery. The heart is the seat of our will and emotions. Now, when I was two years old, I had open heart surgery on my birthday, January 20th, 1981. 
the same day Ronald Reagan was getting inaugurated. And I had open heart surgery at Georgetown because I was going to die apart from open heart surgery. And the surgeon, he repaired my heart. He, he, he put this patch thing on one of the valves of my heart so that I could live. And that was an amazing gift. But what we need as human beings born as sinners into this world, we don't need our hearts to be patched up. Our hearts, according to Jeremiah 17, are deceitful and wicked. But here's the hope of the new covenant, right? The hope of the new covenant is not that God comes and patches up your heart. The hope of the new covenant, the hope of the covenant Christ came to purchase by his blood is that God promises to give you a new heart to take out your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh. I want you to listen to these promises from Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. Listen to how many glorious I wills in this passage. Spurgeon used to say, I I love the sound of I wills in the Bible, right? This is glorious. Listen to what God promises to do for his people in the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. Now, when I say that, y'all can say amen or amen. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Amen. That's what God has promised to do for his people in the new covenant. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to fulfill God's word. He came into the world to die, to inaugurate and purchase and secure God's new covenant. On the night he was betrayed, that's what Jesus said. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Those are blood bought promises, Christian. And that's our only hope. That's our only hope. So set your hope this morning on this God, the God who has secured for you the new covenant. God, the Holy Spirit, doesn't patch us up. He regenerates us. (laughs) We are not not creatures who've been band-aided. We are new creatures, new creations in Christ. He doesn't just tell us what to do from the outside like a coach. The spirit of the eternal God comes to live within us, to empower us, to open our eyes, to help us to walk in obedience and faith. And he promises to never leave us or forsake us. That's the hope of the new covenant. That's number one. Second injunction. Trust Christ, the life giving vine and bear fruit for God. Trust Christ the life-giving vine and bear fruit for God. One of the mistakes that is always uh, there, a temptation that's always there when you hear a sermon on self-examination, when you hear from God's word that you need to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith, one mistake that you could make 
is to begin to stare at the fruit, even the good fruit in your life and mistake those good fruit as the ground of your justification before God. Brothers and sisters, do not mistake the fruit of holiness as the root of your justification. Do not mistake the fruit of your holiness as the root of your justification. The only righteousness sinners have before a holy God is the imputed, perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ that is credited to us, to our account, by faith alone in Christ alone. That is our only hope. On the last day, when we stand before the holiness of God and the two billion centigrade of His holiness, we need the asbestos righteousness of Christ. We desperately need the alien righteousness that Jesus secured for us by His perfect life and atoning death. That is our only hope. So you don't look at the little five or six fruit you see in your life and think, oh, that's the basis I'm going to be accepted before God. We are received as beggars and adopted as children into the family of faith because of Jesus Christ, by simply trusting in him, by receiving Christ as our righteousness. But those who have trusted in Christ, who have received Christ, Jesus describes our relationship as that of a vine and branches. Remember that in John 15? John 15, 4, Jesus describes himself as the life-giving vine. Okay? So this is what he said. These are Jesus' words. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So, brothers and sisters, if you look in your life and others help you to do this and you see some fruit, some good fruit in your life. That's evidence that you're united to the life-giving vine, Jesus Christ. That's not the evidence that you've looked to say, well, that's the basis on which I'm going to be saved. We're saved by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. Jesus is the life-giving root. By simply receiving Christ, by being united to him by spirit-wrought faith, By receiving the Savior as he's offered to you in the gospel. The one who lived and died and rose again for sinners. By simply receiving him. We are grafted into the vine. Grafted into the root of Jesse. And then we bear fruit for God. So if if you're not trusting in Christ, that's what this text is forcing you to. To trust him. To trust in God the life-giving vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, number three, hear the word of God and hold fast to it together. Now mark that last word, together. 
hear the word of God and hold fast to it together. If you take your Bibles, you just look at our passage. Look at the very next paragraph. Luke chapter six, begin in verse 46. Do you see that? Jesus is going to contrast in those verses that we're going to look at next week. The one who hears the word of God and does not do them. And the one who hears the word of God and obeys the word. And he's going to talk about the the two different foundations, right? So what, what Jesus wants us to do, if we're going to bear fruit for him, we need to be those who hear the word of God and hold fast to it. And we do that together as a church. Um, Just take your Bibles. We're flipping a little bit, but just take your Bibles and flip one page. Flip over to um, the parable of the sower, Luke chapter 8. Just go over one one page maybe in your Bible. Luke chapter 8. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear... But as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. And that's some of us in this room. You've heard the word of God, but good things, cares and riches and even pleasures have choked out the word in your life. Look at verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, notice this, hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit, notice, with patience. With patience. Oftentimes when you plant something in the ground, it doesn't spring up overnight, does it? You've got to tend it and water it and care for it. And eventually, with patience, it grows. Hear the word, hold fast to the word, and bear fruit with patience. And I want to encourage you, each one of you, to do those three things. Hear the word, hold fast to the word, and bear fruit with patience in a local church, in the context of the family of faith that God has called you to. I want to encourage you to put these into practice together with brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, don't try this alone. Don't try this alone. Now, I was trying to explain on the way in to my kids. Some of you will get this. When I was a kid, I used to get up with my brother really early on Saturday mornings because we wanted to watch something called Saturday morning cartoons. Now, this is completely mind-blowing to people who have grown up in the age where there's Cartoon Network, literally like 24 hours of constant cartoons. But when I was a kid, if you didn't get up early, you would miss your chance all week of getting to watch your favorite cartoons, right? And when I would watch those cartoons, there would always be some show we would watch and it would be people doing crazy stuff. So they'd be like kids who are jumping on a trampoline or kids that are that are like riding bikes or skateboards on a, on a half pipe or whatever. And there would always be this like warning at the bottom of the screen. It would say, kids, don't try this at home. 
right? There was a show called Mr. Wizard we'd watch sometimes, and he'd do these science experiments. He'd say, don't try this at home, right? Y'all with me? Y'all understand what I'm saying? Wait, one person. Great, Deb. I appreciate that nod, Deb. Thank you. Um, Well, in a similar way, I want to put a, a similar warning before each one of us this morning, and it's this. Church, don't try this alone. Don't try this alone. Don't try self-examination alone. Because of your indwelling sin, because of the deceitfulness of your own heart, you are not in the best position to see yourself clearly and to to assess yourself rightly. Now, it is fine and good and necessary for us to take a look at our own lives. We're commanded to, right? Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. But it's better, brothers and sisters, if we examine ourselves with the help of brothers and sisters who've covenanted together to love us and to care for us in the local church. Your church family is kind of like an assurance of salvation co-op, right? We're helping each other get to glory. And now listen, my friend Greg Gilbert put it this way. Quote, too often we tend to think too highly of ourselves and we conclude that things are going well for us spiritually when actually they're not going well at all. We can sin is deceitful, Hebrew says, right? But just as dangerously, sometimes, listen, we can be blind to the many good things the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives and through our lives, end quote. So there's two extremes. You might be blissfully unaware of sin, bad fruit that you need brothers and sisters to help you with, like the guy in the diner who's eating a a, a bagel with cream cheese and he's getting ready to go to an interview and he's confident, he's got his tie ready, his suit on, and he doesn't realize he's got a huge glob of cream cheese on his beard. He's walking right into that. I mean, he needs someone else to say, you've got something on your face, right? We need other brothers and sisters to help us with that. But the same temptation on the other end. Brothers and sisters, there may be wonderful things that God is doing in your life and through your life that because of your own sin, because of your own blindness, you don't see it. You need others to point that out to you. And so we want to be a congregation that's marked by honesty and transparency and safety. We want to be a church who can, who can confess our sins, confess our struggles, confess our failures, the areas of our lives where we need help. We want to be the kind of congregation that seeks to help the weak, to come alongside the weary, to, that seeks to strengthen the faint-hearted, that seeks to admonish those of us who are idle, that seeks to rebuke the hard-hearted, and that seeks to be patient and loving with everyone. So let's pray. Let's pray as a church that we will become increasingly a church where is a safe place for you to ask and to answer the question, how are you really doing? So God calls us to speak the truth in love 
And so that means we need to be willing to correct and rebuke sin at times. But based on Jesus's words, we want to make sure we've examined ourselves first and that we follow what God's word says in Galatians 6, 1, that we that we seek to correct and restore a, a, a brother or sister who is sinning, who's in any transgression, who's caught in that. We want to go with them with the posture of gentleness and with the hope of restoration. Galatians 6, 1 ought to frame the way that we do that as a church. Um, how many of you, raise your, hand, raise your hand if you were here when Ed Moore preached that sermon years ago on encouragement. Don't be ashamed. All right, I'm going to tell him. All right. If you haven't listened to that sermon, just go online and find Ed Moore. It's one of the best sermons you will ever hear on the, 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 the blessing of encouragement. And one of the things that Ed said in that sermon that I've never forgotten was he said this. When you're speaking about encouragement, we're really quick to point out to other people when they're wrong or when they've got issues. But sometimes we, we don't, we see something encouraging, we don't say anything. And he said in that sermon, if you see something, say something. If you see God working in the lives of your brothers and sisters in this church, just say something. It could be a text. It could be an email. It could be a phone call. There's a th- there are phones. You can pick them up and call people. And they hear on the other end. It's amazing. You can say to them, hey, listen, I, I, don't, I know you're busy. I just want to tell you, I saw the Holy Spirit working in your life. The way that you gently were, were speaking to your child after the service. That was a tender, kind, gracious word. That's God working in your life. Be encouraged. Hang up. You see, it doesn't take much, but we want to be a church that is pointing out evidences of grace because they're all around us. They're all around us. God is actually working. And we want to give him glory by pointing out those evidences of grace where we can. It's easy to point out and to see one bad apple, but when we do that, we often neglect the harvest the orchard of righteousness that God is producing in the lives of others. Remember John Newton, um, he said one time, and I hope you can relate to this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I might be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But thanks be to God, I am not what I once was a child of sin and a slave of the devil. And now I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Practically, how do we do this? I would encourage you as a church, one of the ways that we can do this, especially over the summer as we open things back up and especially as we head towards the fall, one of the ways that practically we can do this as a church is by getting involved in one another's lives through small groups, through community groups, through our Bible studies. Let me encourage you that if you want more information about those, reach out to the church office, reach out to Marcus Glover. We want to be able to try to to again, to, to, to get those types of things started again. Some of them have con- continued, but we want to try to encourage those kind of contexts where we can get to know one another and encourage one another, especially as, as things begin to open it up.
We want to hear the word of God and we want to hold fast to the word of God together. Now, as we close, I want us to just conclude our time by reflecting briefly on how the gospel of Luke ends. So Jesus, in this verse, he's going to obviously finish teaching the Sermon on the Plain. And in a few chapters later, in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus, we're told, set his face like flint to head to Jerusalem. And the rest of Luke's gospel is Jesus on his way to the cross. He's on his way to the cross. And we need to remind ourselves that the one who spoke these words about judging bore the judgment of God Almighty in our place on the cross. The one who spoke about judging and bearing fruit was the one who bore the curse of God for our sins in his body on the tree. The one who rose again for our justification three days later. And we need to remind ourselves that if we are trusting in the Savior this morning, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So weary Christian this morning, you may be sitting here in this church condemning yourself out of a lack of growth. Maybe you're ashamed at how slowly you're growing, how few good fruit you see in your life this morning. You're ashamed maybe at the, the constant besetting sin that doesn't seem to be going away. Well, weary Christian, I want you to look to Christ. I want you to look to Christ. Christ, listen, Christ was not ashamed of us in his incarnation. The one who is high and holy, the one who inhabits eternity, the one whose name is holy, the eternal and only begotten son of the father was not ashamed of us when he became like us. He took our flesh. We were laden with guilt. We were unclean. From head to toe, we were rebels who resisted his will. And he was not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Ponder that. He was not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. He was not ashamed of us before God or before all the holy angels in heaven. He took on our flesh assumed our nature, became like us in all things except for sin. And listen, Christian, the one who we just read about in Luke 6, the one who died and rose again, who ascended to God's right hand, the one who is coming again to judge the world, that one will not be ashamed of you when he comes on the last day. The one who comes to judge is the one who came to save He came to save and was judged in your place on the cross. He came to seek and to save the lost. So the very one who is your judge is also your savior. And listen to me on that day in full view of the whole world, all creation will hear Jesus Christ, your elder brother, who will stand publicly And for all of his brothers and sisters, for all who followed him by faith in this world, however imperfectly, 
He will speak and stand up for us. All who have followed him, even those who've been despised and rejected in this world. He will proclaim your name before the whole world. And he will declare in the sight of all, this one is mine. This one is mine. I am not ashamed to call him my brother and to call her my sister. He will proclaim our name to every ear that we are his. That we belong to him. He will declare that nothing in heaven or hell is able to separate these from my love. He will, he will declare, these are the ones I purchased. These are mine. And no one will criticize his judgment on that day. No one. No, no one will dare oppose his judgment. His judgment will be exalted above the heavens and above all criticism. And the heavens above and the earth below and everything will submit eternally to the judgment of our Lord and our Savior, the glorified Christ. And brothers and sisters, on that day, God the Father will rest in the glorious work of his Son. Just as God rested on the seventh day of creation, he will see the work of his Son and he will delight in it and take pleasure in it. And then the church will be presented to Christ without spot or wrinkle. And then the Father will invite all of his adopted and redeemed sons and daughters into perfect fellowship of his glorious presence forever. And the Savior of sinners will declare to all who've walked by faith in this world, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So weary Christian, take heart. Look to this Christ, the one who died and rose again. And know that we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you that though our sins are like scarlet, you have made us white as snow. We thank you and praise you that we have a justification, a righteousness that is in heaven. One that has been granted to us freely by faith alone. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the truth. Help us to bear fruit as a church and individually so that God, you get all the glory and all the praise. Make that happen by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen.